Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Have questions about the healthcare industry? Welcome to 19 Conversations. Today, we're asking Jack Scannell, independent consultant and honorary fellow in the School of Social and Political Sciences at Edinburgh University, is the pharmaceutical industry making too much money? I'm Jackie Davis. Thank you for joining the conversation. So, Jack, a very warm welcome. Um, First, let me start with a very basic question so that we understand the background to this discussion. COVID has shown just how important investment in medical research is. But how do investors actually decide where to put their money? Well, I think if the truth be told, it's uh, much more like betting on horses or playing the lottery than, you know, than most people would think. It's a high-tech version of that. But I think particularly looking at biotech-type investments, investors guess how much a successful drug might sell for. They try and work out how much it would cost to run the clinical trials and bring it to market. Importantly, they try and guess the odds that those trials are going to be successful and how long it's going to take. They put those numbers together uh, and then they decide. It's really like taking a bet. Um, on COVID, I think it's been somewhat different. The If you can remember as far back as um, January and February, uh, which seems like a long time ago, um, at the time, not much of the drug industry was particularly enthusiastic about COVID vaccines, interestingly. And I think they looked at bets that they had made on earlier pandemics or near pandemics, mm. SARS and MERS. And in those cases, some companies had spent quite a lot of money developing vaccines only to find that the pandemics had petered out before those vaccines ever came to market. And I think in the case of COVID-19, it was only when it became clear to governments and then governments threw a lot of money at the problem that the industry got enthusiastic. And the government's throwing money at the problem effectively changed the bet because the companies were taking a lot less risk on the R&D costs and they had a guaranteed market if the vaccines worked. And which markets do they look at when they're trying to decide how much uh, they will make. Is it always the same? Is it different for different drugs? Um, I would say in general, there's a strong skew towards the US. There is a famous bank robber who was asked, why did he rob banks? And he said, uh, that's where the money is. right? And I think uh, to a certain extent, you know, private sector investment is strongly skewed to where the money is. And the Americans pay more for the same drugs than Europeans. They tend to adopt them quicker and they tend to be more keen to prescribe them. And what that means is that the US and actually to an increasing extent, China skew private sector R&D investment and Europe is becoming less important as it consumes a smaller and smaller share of new drugs. Okay, so cutting to the chase of the question I asked at the beginning, um, are those who believe the pharmaceutical industry is too profitable, are they right? So I'll qualify my answer a bit before giving you a direct answer. And actually, I'll give you a direct answer, first of all. I think in aggregate, the answer is no, right? Um, but it's a kind of loaded question, right? Because when one has arguments about industry profitability, right, I think there's a tendency to think that if the industry is winning, the customer is losing. In fact, it's it's just a four-way logic, really. You could have a situation where the industry is winning and the customer is winning. You could have a situation where the industry is losing and the customer is losing. You could have the customer winning and the industry losing, or you could have uh, uh, the third one, whatever the third one is. <laughs> and I mean, the best situation is typically situations where the industry is winning and the customer is winning. And the reason for that is you've got 
happy customers and you have capital flowing to make sure that the customers still get what they like. The worst situation is generally where the customer is losing and the industry is losing because that's characteristic of an industry in decline. It's where the industry is producing stuff that the customer doesn't want to buy at a price the customer wants to buy it at and the industry is losing money. So a classic example there would be you know, the candle industry in the end of the 19th century, right? Um, it, it was an industry in decline. Um, so coming back to the drug industry, well, a lot of the policy debate is appalling because it's based on irrelevant numbers. So people talk about profit margins. Um, the drug industry does have high profit margins, but that's not a great measure of whether an industry is good or not. Supermarkets have low profit margins. They can be a pretty good business. Um, and to answer the question, one has to look at the sorts of measures that interest capitalists. And capitalists, the clue is in the name. Capitalists are interested in the, the amount of profit they make per unit time, per unit of capital, typically. And there's a bunch of measures which are relevant there. And if you look at them, and it's not that hard to calculate them, um, what you find is that the industry did very, very well from around 1930 to around the year 2000. And the industry returns started declining on some measures uh, around 2000. And now on most measures that a sensible capitalist would look at, um, industry performance is sort of average or possibly slightly below other industries after a very, very good long run. Um, so there we and are. is it the same across the board? Is it the same, broadly speaking, for all drugs or treatments for all types of diseases? Or do we see significant variations? There is huge variation. And typically what you find is drug companies get less and less interested in those areas that they think are less and less profitable. And they get more and more interested in those areas that they think are more and more profitable. And there's a very obvious example at the moment. Uh, uh, cancer drug prices are contentious. Um, but because cancer drug prices are high, there's a huge amount of private sector flowing into oncology R&D. Right? You've got this weird situation in the US where a confluence of interests between physicians, hospitals, the drug industry means you have very, very high cancer drug prices. The confluence of interests means that politically it's very hard to do anything about them. Right, So there's a huge amount of private sector capital flows into oncology. causes problems in Europe because the prices that the US market will bear are problematic for lots of European health systems. On the other hand, one can think of you know drugs for typically poor people in poor countries or even antibiotics for rich people in rich countries, where for various geeky technical reasons, the prices tend to be very low, the markets are small, and private sector capital has largely walked away. And okay, very simple question. I mean, it seems to me you have research and development costs, and that is the big cost, as you were talking earlier about that assessment uh, that investors make when they're looking about where to put their money. Um, why can't we just say, okay, that's what it costs to develop the drug, that's the R and D cost. So logically, the price is X. Why can't we do it just simply like that? Um. I'm not going to say you couldn't do it. I think you could do it, but I don't think it would deliver the policy objectives you want. And I think that is for a number of reasons. I think the first one is, is, is just ferociously difficult to do in practice. So because the cost of R&D is dominated by the cost of failure and lots of companies never bring anything to market, there's a sort of practical question, which is when you say how much did the R&D cost, what do you include in that calculation? Do you include all of the stuff that didn't work? And then how do you allocate the cost of the stuff that didn't work? So would you include the stuff that didn't work in a different disease? Would you include the stuff that didn't work in a different country? And if you didn't include that stuff, then the private sector investors, when they're placing their bets, they know a bunch of stuff ain't going to work. 
So if you only wanted to base your cost on the stuff that worked, you're not going to be offering enough money to get private sector investors to place the R&D bets in the first place. So I think there's this sort of ferocious cost allocation problem that means that when you try and work through the practicalities of doing it, it's very, very hard to think how you do it in a sensible way. So are you essentially saying you need to price in the cost of failure? I think an analogy is, well, yes. And there's a very good analogy that everyone understands, right, which makes it simple, which is you need to think about it like running a lottery. So imagine that you've decided to pay lottery winners on the price that people paid to buy their lottery ticket, right? If you were offering, so, okay, it cost me a pound to buy my, or a euro to buy my lottery ticket. If I could win a euro or a euro and 10 cents, which was how much it cost me to buy my ticket, it wouldn't be a very attractive lottery. Lotteries are fair for the people entering them, but they're deeply unfair in terms of who wins and loses. And you need to offer the winners a lot more than the stake of the average player, right? And I think, yeah. and I think the same logic applies to R&D. Prices are an incentive, they're not a reward, right? They're not fair because lots of equally good companies will fail because there's a lot of luck in R&D as well. So I think the thing is to think about prices as an incentive, not a reward. And what would happen if we reduce that incentive? So if we simply reduce prices, uh, countries decide they just won't pay a certain price and they reduce them. Depends a lot who the countries are, to be frank. Um, and uh, again, without wishing to be unfair to sort of Liechtenstein or Luxembourg, right? Uh, people are making R&D investment decisions on a global basis. So you're estimating the size of the global market for your drug, which is dominated by the US, possibly China. So if Luxembourg or Liechtenstein decided not to pay for drugs, it would make zero impact on the number of new drugs that the world discovered, right? Because people would still fund for the US and Chinese markets. But what it would mean, probably, is that drug companies would then not sell the drug to Liechtenstein or Luxembourg because they would fear that if they did, the countries that are still buying the drug would want the price that Liechtenstein and Luxembourg got. So for Europe, the real issue around trying to introduce radically lower pricing is an access problem, not an R&D investment problem. You're not going to stop the flow of drugs. You're just not going to get access to them. And you indicated earlier uh, that that really when, when companies, when investors are looking at the sort of profits they can make on a drug, they look at the US market. Uh, how does the pricing compare US to Europe? And, and what is the impact of low prices in Europe uh, on, on the US? How's that equation work? So it varies by class. So for some drugs, the difference isn't great. But I think if you wanted a sort of very rough rule of thumb, you would think that drugs were half the price in Western Europe developed countries versus the US. It's rough and it varies by class, but there could be a 2x difference. Uh, for some newer drugs, the difference is narrower. And that's partly because the drug industry is sensitive to political risk in the US, right? And for some drugs, it may be a bit wider. And sorry, the second part of your question was? Well, just how the, the relationship between those two and how that equation works, because I'm thinking here, we get a lot of calls for more transparency in drug pricing in Europe. Uh, is that the way forward? Is that the way to address this issue? Or could it have unforeseen consequences, uh, unintended consequences that, that aren't immediately apparent? Yeah, so I, I think people calling for drug price transparency should be very, very careful what they wish for. And I think there's a lot of good economic theory which says if you've got a bunch of people with different ability or willingness to pay, uh, it's actually much better both for the industry and for the buyers to go for what's called price discrimination, right? You sell the goods at a different price to different people. Now, 
price transparency makes price discrimination very, very difficult because you're signaling to the people in the high price markets that there's other people out there who buy it for less. And the easier you make it for those people to know that other people are buying it for less, the more they're going to demand to have it for less and the more the seller is is going to not sell it in the low price markets. So given that price disparity between the US and Europe, are you saying it's Europe that would lose out in that case? Yes, is the short answer, <laughs> I think. Uh, and we see this already, right? So in the UK, it's maybe not painted in these terms, right? But we have a health economic agency called NICE. They work out the cost effectiveness of drugs. They deem many expensive drugs to be not cost effective. Drug companies then have the choice of cutting the price to make the drug cost effective in the UK or simply not selling any in the UK. And in some cases, they opt simply not to sell any in the UK. Okay, let's helicopter out from the conversation just about pricing and profitability. And obviously, though, you indicated at the start, in answer to my first question about how do investors decide where to invest, this is all about driving innovation, driving new research and development, driving innovation. What? There's a lot of discussion uh, in Europe at the moment uh, about making Europe a world leader in innovation. What would your strategy be? What would your advice be to European policymakers uh, about how to do that while at the same time addressing health sustainability challenges? What would you do if you were in charge? Okay, I'm going to make some comments here, which I, I would say are sort of based on good general and industry knowledge, but I'm not a specialist innovation economist, but I'll say this. Caveat accepted. I think a lot of those kind of highfalutin ambitions are wholly unrealistic. Uh, and, you know, if one actually looks at where most of the activity is going on, you've got a huge established base of activity in the US. You've got very, very rapid development of, sort of biological sciences and commercialization of biological sciences in China. In Europe, you've got a, I'd say, a sort of real sort of global cluster of expertise around Basel and arguably sort of London, Cambridge, Oxford axis, and in global terms, very little else. And I think, again, I'm afraid to say, but people who sort of talk up European biotech hubs and so forth always appear to me to be people who've never been to the Bay Area in California or, or to Boston, right? The scale is just very, very different. And I think, for example, the things that the Chinese are doing to promote life sciences, uh, you know, many Europeans would be unprepared to do and I think, again, I think the situation in the US would be very, very hard to replicate here. So what can Europe do? Are you saying we, we give up? We don't have that ambition at all? Well, I mean, let's be frank, right? Europe is in relative decline in a whole bunch of areas, not just not just biological sciences right now. Now, I can read EC position documents, but that doesn't stop the fact that Europe is in relative decline. I mean, I don't know on what measures Europe isn't in relative decline. I think what there still is, there's an awful lot of good science still, and good science certainly helps. Um, and, you know, I think one wants to try and hold on where possible to some of the large pharma capacity. Because again, I think if you look at the sort of most productive areas, you have a mixture. Or rather, I think the American experience shows for a lot of healthcare innovation, you really need private sector capital and private sector expertise. You need good universities and you actually need quite a sort of vibrant private sector. And you need all of those three things in roughly the same place, right? So I think, you know, that's how you do it. Doing it is very hard. It's hard to bring those things together in the same place. But I think there's fairly good evidence that you need those three things. So that's the innovation side of the coin. The sustainability side? Again, I may be being a bit of an old stick in the mud here, but I don't really know what people mean by sustainability. It just seems to me to be one of those generally positive words 
that is applied to things that people like. I think what, uh, what, when, when we talk about it in healthcare terms, it's a health system that is affordable, uh, healthcare that can be provided given the growing demands on our health services, uh, aging populations and so on. I think when they talk about a sustainable healthcare system, it's, it's that cost effectiveness issue that they're okay. driving at. So I think, I think to be frank, the, I mean, one thing one can do is actually be prepared to say no a bit more to very expensive drugs, right? We do that in the UK. And although that's painful, if a drug is very expensive and marginally effective, as many of the drug industry's critics argue is very often the case, then the welfare loss of not buying it is small because you can spend that money on something else, right, that, that may be more useful. And I, I also think saying no is a good way of exercising a bit of pricing power over people who are trying to sell you expensive products. That's one thing. I think a second thing in Europe is that in some countries, unglamorous as they are, generic medicines are more expensive than they need to be. So the UK and the US, just to give two examples, are very, very good at driving down the prices of generics. And uh, a lot of European countries aren't. Um, the final thing I would say, though, is I think costs of healthcare are dominated by, they're, they're dominated by people costs. I mean, drugs are a substantial component of the budget, but people are always a substantial component of the budget. And I think that's going to pose sustainability challenges, almost kind of whatever happens to drug pricing. Jack, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. It's one of those questions that sounds so simple when you first ask it, uh, but as you've revealed, has so many layers and so many different ramifications. Thank you very much for taking us through that so clearly and eloquently. Uh, and thank you very much for listening to 19 Conversations. If you like this podcast, please click on the subscribe button to be the first to know when we release our next episode and please leave a rating and review. And until our next episode, we'd invite you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag questions inspire solutions. Goodbye.